I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to this. It is the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at jbeardmore. My co-host on the Egg Chasers Rugby podcast, Cocker, is at Cocker. And, of course, the podcast we do. You can find this one, at the Rugby Dungeon. You can find uh, Egg Chasers at Rugby Podcast. And, as always, the Rugby Dungeon is brought to you by Beardmore & Co. Independent Financial Advisors. You can find exactly what we do on uh, on our website, uh, Beardmore IFA. Um, yeah, that's all of the housekeeping done. Now you can sit back and enjoy this. It is a chat with Benjamin Kayser. How are you? I am good, thanks. Um, just moved to 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 England and back in back in August. The welcome has not been the the warmest because of lockdown and obviously COVID putting everything at a stop. But uh, but life is good. You live in England. I do. Yeah. Where, I just, so where I, I played. I, mean, I live in Tumbridge Wells, in Kent. Oh, very nice. Well, how um, how come that has come about? So basically, I played for Leicester Tigers between 2007 and 2009, mm-hmm. and I met my wife there, who was from Kent originally, who was studying in Leicester, uh, and then she came back to France with me for uh, 11 years. We have two little girls that are six and three, and it was always in the back of our heads to basically come back at some point uh, to make sure that the girls uh, are fully bilingual and can go to an international school and all that, and the fact also is that with Eurostar, it is so convenient to be within reach of Paris. Yeah. It's actually closer to be based in London than to be based anywhere else in France. And um, and and on top of that, I, I'm, I am back studying. I'm doing an MBA at Oxford. Yeah. So basically the idea of being not too far from Oxford to, for the networking, school for the girls, and within the reach of London and Paris is a good spot for us to be based for the next, I don't know how many years where I'm figuring out what the next step is post-rugby. Wow. Well, they do say, don't they, that uh, that London is something like the third biggest French city in terms of exactly in terms of French nationals. Exactly. I think there's about three hundred fifty thousand French people in London. The whole population of Clermont-Ferrand, where I stayed for ten years, is one hundred sixty thousand. So wow, that, that tells you. So I guess we should start with the serious stuff. Um, you're not really a fan of the rugby jerseys I've got up, got got up behind me. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm just very proud. Listen, ten years of. 10 years of um, swallowing my pride, of 
um, admitting defeat, <laughs> of trying to explain the unexplainable of underperformance of French rugby. And now finally, for the next last six months, we've been shining a little bit. We're a little bit back from, from the dead and, and, and back to where we should be. The, the, the journey is not over. There's a, still a lot of work to be done. Okay, but um, I'm finally can, can, can ex express basically my love for France and, and, and my pride of being French. So that's why when I see the British and Irish Lions um, <laughs> jersey behind you, which is obviously a fantastic jersey, and I can't wait to see you in action next summer, I would love to see a little Frenchy one there because at the moment they're hot. You know, I've got about three or four French, French jerseys and the reason they're not up well, the reason that two of them aren't up is because I regularly wear them. So there you go. <laughs> um, just on the Lions, uh, I was going to ask you something else. No, in fact, I'll ask you something else first. I'll ask you my last trivial question and then we'll get on some, on, on some actual serious rugby. I always, wanted, I always wanted to ask you, your yellow gloves that you wear on TV, are those official Claremont gloves <laughs> or have you got them from somewhere else? I tell you what, the, the, forget about rugby. Those yellow gloves are about the right balance in life. And when my wife gives me a Christmas gift, which are a hot pair of yellow gloves that I love, and she tells me, "Oh, they would look really nice, you know, with your coat," then I do what I'm told. <laughs> and so whatever, whatever the stick that I got afterwards, I, I, I saw some funny ones. So, yeah, great chat and stuff, but yeah, I look like I have Mickey Mouse hands, you know, with yeah. those massive sort of white gloves and all that. Somebody was asking me if if I need to go do the dishes or whatever it was. It's it's great fun. I love those gloves. They've got nothing to do with Clermont. They oh, are they not? The my, my my wife has got great taste, and let's face it, I'm a little bit whipped. There. <laughs> There we go then. Yeah, just on uh, France France and the Lions. Do you know, I think the ultimate Lions tour, of course it can never happen because of the way things are structured, but the Lions should go to France. I, I think that, that would be, uh, outside of maybe Argentina, no, actually, including Argentina, that, that would be the best tour. That would be the best tour, but I mean, considering the... the, the... The, the Lions now, I think they're playing Japan, aren't they? A couple of weeks before the, before yeah. the tour or stuff like that. That would be extraordinary. Just just to, to start out with a friendly game, at least. But definitely, when you think about... I think what people like about the Lions tour is also discovering a new country. Mm -hmm. It's going there for a couple of weeks. Those midweek games, everybody uh, loves them because you know they're just special. They actually represent... You go through the full spectrum of what New Zealand, South Africa and Australia rugby is all about, which is what we all love. And where I agree with you, is it would be extraordinary to get the Lions to then play midweek in Beritz and oh. then go to Perpignan and then you go to Toulouse and then you go to game in Paris and then you finally build up to the big games. It would be extraordinary, but we're too close. So well, I don't think it will ever happen. So and, and if anything, they should invite a guest a guest of honour, one Frenchman, you know, and to play for the Lions. Exactly. Well, it's an interesting one, that, because you say we're too close, but quite regularly in an international calendar, England will see... One of the home nations, well, no, actually, that's wrong. They will see one of the home nations once a year. So England play France once a year. In that same year, they might well play Australia three or four times. And if you think about how close the two countries are, French rugby in the UK is still surrounded in mystery. I mean, the most we can say about it is, oh, it depends which French team sh shows up, or there's a few cliches that band around, but no one really understands it over here. Well, that's precisely the reason why myself and Johnny Beatty decided to to do a, a podcast from last summer, and we we did the, we were, were doing at the moment with Tim Groves, the French Rugby Pod. It's exactly that. Listen, 
I am one of the, the, the few French speakers, the French, sorry, who, who is comfortable to speak in English. Mm-hmm. So those questions have been asked my whole career. How come France are underperforming? What's going on with France? Explain to me the difference. Why would French people do that? Why do this with that? So it's exactly what we're trying to address in that podcast and just answering all those questions. It is fascinating. I think it's a lot more than rugby. It's about psychology. It's about our history and how how history of a country and a sport and organization can actually shape the way that you behave and, and the way that you react to things. And it's just, it's diversity, I think is always good. So the more you know about others, you know, the, 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 the more, the, the wealthier you are, at least in your soul and in your brain. So I know, and, and to be honest, one of the reasons also that we created this podcast is because I learned, I heard, sorry, a lot of shit. Yeah. So, some English guys that would play in France, come back and just go with the absolute cliches of the French are lazy. The French are underperformers. The French will, ne- you know, do this, do that. No, we're different. Okay. But it doesn't mean that the, the English are better or the French are better. It just means that we're different. We do things in different ways. There's a lot of things that have to be improved in French rugby. Okay. But it's just a different animal. So learn to love us. Don't judge so what are the most common misconceptions that you hear then about French rugby? Um, that the French are unfit, mm. unfit, unprofessional, don't train hard enough. That could have been true maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago with it, when it is true. Like I, I arrived in Leicester Tigers in 2007 from Stade Francais, who were a fantastic club at the time. And we just won the, the top 14 actually in, in June 2007 against Clermont. Um, and getting to Leicester was a whole different step. I thought I got drafted in the in the NFL. Like it was a different setup um, it, it, in terms of professionalism. And I mean, that was the whole charisma about Stade Francais. That's that's why our soul and the culture was so strong. It, it wasn't in the infrastructure. It was in the fact that you would take your little scooter Vespa to go into this rented uh, conditioning place or sorry gym that we would use. That definitely wasn't ours. It was shared by loads of people and then you would drive to another place. So that sort of humble, humble, um, how do you say that? Like system, they, whatever, um, make things work, whatever, you know, mm. just like BB, almost street smart, whatever, and, and make it work. Let's stay humble and all that. Let's be different and still perform. That was the whole ethos around, around Stade Francais. And when I got to Leicester, there was a conditioner for three or four players um, we had the whole access to extra nutrition. They would cook breakfast for us. They, just getting my kit cleaned, you know, that was something I've never had. Really? And you get to Leicester, there was, yeah, in Stade Francais, they give you a bag in the beginning of the day and they will go. But not a lot of French clubs clean that. It's, that's a very new thing. No. Uh, they don't, yeah, yeah, honest. So when I got to Clermont, when I arrived in Clermont in 2011, also, I was I was very comfortable with that because they would clean your kit and put it in the place. And so otherwise, yeah, you get your stuff. Well, you, you don't have a washing machine at home. You just take your stuff, you go home, you clean your stuff and you come back with it. You know, that's just how I was brought up. And so basically to tell you, yes, at the time, I think there was a difference in professionalism and level of training and stuff. But I always give those, those examples. You, you tell, you explain a group of 10 English lads, guys, you guys need to run around this track 10 times, whatever. Mm -hmm. They'll run, they'll finish, they'll do well. And then they'll be like, oh, why did we do this? Okay. You take the, you do the same thing to 10 French people and they will moan. They will (laughs) complain. They will want to know, but if you explain them why, why it will be beneficial, how to do it. And you challenge them to do well, 
not only will they run around the pitch, but they will run around or 10 times around the track as fast as they can. And most definitely a lot faster than anybody else. But it takes time and you need to convince them and they need to believe in it, which are the barriers that, that are crazy. That's why we're capable of the most incredible highs, but also of the most disappointing That's lows. Really interesting. So one of the things which is often said about the French is... Uh, they are particularly hard. They are particularly hard to coach, uh, and also maybe the Anglo way of doing things doesn't work too, too well. But I guess if you're an Anglo coach and you just say you must do this in that very dictatorial manner, you're not going to get the results. It's about the understanding. Precisely, precisely. I think you've got it spot on. Look at Sean Edwards. Sean Edwards. Don't tell me he's the most diplomat coach in the world. Uh, he's 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 a bit of a he's a bit of a tyrant. Mm. But I think he's got it. He nailed it because he moved to France. Yeah. He doesn't speak really well French, but, but, but he's trying. He moved to his whole family to France. Apparently, from what I've heard, he really bought into the whole culture of not trying to tell people how it's done, but bring the best out of his methods. Like, this is what I can bring to you. Now, let's make something French out of it. Not saying, I used to do this in England and we'll do precisely the same thing there. So you actually adapted, and the and the success is is huge, and and all the players and and Fabien Galtier, everybody recognizes how good he is. So basically, what I'm where you're dead are dead right is that we are open. I think French people, are, are French players, are very easy to coach. They mm. are, but great coaches will have. It's like great managers will have different. Will have a variety of different management or leadership techniques they can implement instead of just being a dictator. Yeah, you win the trust. You actually show who you are as a human being, and then you will. Do it. We need that human connection. We need not only just the sort of the strategic and technical talent to say, right, this guy's a fantastic coach. I actually need to believe in you. I need to believe in your soul. You know, show me that you're ready to go that extra mile with you. But if you get both connected, that's when magic happens. Yeah, you've said that word a few times now. Uh, soul. Uh, how important is that to? the way a French team operates. Because in my mind, I don't really care if my coach has got soul or not. Just so long as he tells me um, what to do or how to train, or as long as he's adding value, I don't really care uh, what, the man, uh, what the man thinks deep down. But that's, that's your way of seeing things. It's not <laughs> mine. <laughs> um, I, I think, I, I, to be totally honest, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm. It's, it's just different way of seeing it. Uh, I, I I thoroughly believe that professional sport, high-level competition, team sport, forget about professional, just competition team sport, especially rugby, deserves and needs the extra bit of passion, camaraderie, brotherhood, soul, purpose, whatever it is that you want to call us. Yeah. It, it, I think that we we perform better. We will remember it better. And it's all about the... I mean, I started rugby when I was pretty old. I started when I was 14, a little bit out of nowhere, because my dad was a consultant, so we traveled a lot. That's why I speak English. Okay. We traveled a lot um, abroad. We went to China. I lived in the States and all that. Um, and what, I, what really made me click with rugby was the brotherhood, was the mates, was the, was the friends, yeah. was being part of something where, where I also thought that the skinniest dude, the tiniest who would not hurt a soul, could still be the, the, the bravest guy on the pitch 
just because even if he doesn't put a big tackle, if the t- most the smallest dude throws himself on the knees of the biggest opposition fella, that's a show a, a true sign of absolute courage. If you know what I mean. No, I completely right? agree if, with that. Whereas at, at school, it would be the biggest dude with the biggest mouth, but that would never really do much, you know. So it's a different hierarchy, a different way of assessing courage and and merit. And so I I do believe that we, I need purpose, I need passion, I need the soul, I need the 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 drive from the heart to actually perform not only because it's to it's for also because it's that's why I fell in love with rugby hmm. but it's also because I really do think that's what makes us perform even better yeah and a, a career is titles mates and memories and I think to get all of them together you you need that extra bit of passion and soul but that's just the way that I see it excellent so looking back at the French team not this French team we have now we'll come to them later but the you know the recent the recent incarnations who just haven't quite clicked why do you think that is is that a technical problem with the way the french are selecting their teams and the boring dull administrative part of the game or is that something a bit more fundamental um that's that's a big big question it is um that 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 we answer quite a lot in the french rugby pod because that's that is the question that i get asked all the time and it's it's a big topic um <laughs> i believe that it's funny because it's the um i i so i i i'm back studying at oxford i'm doing an mba mm-hmm. and i had to do my apl- uh, application process and in it there was like one of the questions you know is like a case study and they're like uh, give us a problem or organization and three ways to solve it and i took as the problem the underperformance or whatever the, the disaster of french rugby oh, amazing like so i actually had have a whole case study on it if you know what i mean so yeah i probably took some time to to think about it to assess because it's something very dear to my heart and and i think there's a lot more in the answer than just ah they need to pick a better coach ah, they they're lacking five world-class players that's it it's a lot lot deeper can i and the, 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 yeah can i read that after we're done <laughs> yeah 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 i'm sure you can Sorry, so basically the 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 answer for me is is a structural problem mm-hmm. which consequences are the fact that nobody drives in the same direction so the structural problem is um french rugby is not school based like in england yes it's club based so which means that the stade français the toulouse the birds and all that you can start when you're six years old so you have to understand that the power of French rugby is within the clubs and that will never change mm. because we are very much proud of it as well. Uh, we can adapt. Modern rugby can adapt, but a, 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 a province sort of federation led like in the, like for the Celts, like for the, the Welsh and the Irish, um, well, that will never work. That yeah. is just not France. So I think England is quite similar to some extent, but that is how we, we have to be structured. And the federation was always extremely poorly run uh, because it was a federation that was there to generate enough cash to basically have fun for French rugby. But it was never run like a business. Mm. It was it was free meals and free cars and this and that for the mate of your mate of your mate to stay happy. So the politics were dreadful. There was never even an election. There was never a challenge at the election. They, they called it an election, but there was only one candidate. <laughs> you know, so that's, not, that's not really a stressful moment is it yeah and and then professional rugby arrived and so the federation delegated the rights to the league 
to organize and promote and commercialize professional rugby, which is first and second division, and now a little bit of third division, national one. And the league did such a good job at creating an extraordinary product, not extraordinary product, but an exciting product and a great economy with the great Max Guazzini of Stade Francais, who then ended up putting six times 80,000 people for league games and, and yeah. European games at Stade de France, you know, something that's just unheard of. And they promoted all that. Then some extra presidents came into the into the into the, the, the this world, um, but they're not Max Guazzini. They are tough buggers who will not take no for an answer and who are very driven and very ambitious. And so basically, the league took an extraordinary power that they were, it was never meant to have, but because they generated all the cash, the federation doesn't have the cash to to actually implement anything. I mean, I was comparing sort of turnover balance sheets of the RFU and the FFR. The RFU, I think they make 180 million a year. Yeah. They make 90 million of profit. Do they really? Is it that much? Yeah, but 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 the 90 million of profit is already given into, they don't keep any of that as yeah. pure profit. It's already, um, they need to support X amount of different um, projects. So the, the money is never kept, it's already given, but still, and that's all down to Twickenham because they own Twickenham. And I think they make 40 million just thanks to hospitality per year. Yeah. It's absolutely ginormous. France need to sell a minimum of, or used to, because now there's a new deal used to be able to sell 50,000 tickets at Stade de France to start making one euro. Wow. Because they rented, they rent the club, the, the club, they rent the stadium to the consortium of Stade de France, which owns the stadium. The FFR do not own it. And, uh, and then they get, obviously, to, to, to cut the cost on, on the rents, it's only from the 50,000 seats. So you understand that the, the, they need the money from the league. They need that economy. So that's why they delegated all that power and they left it. But now we get to a point where the clubs are so strong that they dictate everything with the broadcaster and everything. And the federation would just pick up the pieces. Yes. And now they are clearly clashing, clearly clashing. So to answer your question, the reason why France rugby underperformed for the last 10 years is a slow top 14, which is based on economy, not on quality of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not based, not made to 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 create um, a fantastic um, in, uh, French team. It's made to create an exciting, uh, money rewarding Premiership, but it's not made to create players to go play for the French team and then to perform on international level. I see. Um, it's the fact that there is absolutely zero common goal at achieving something. So if you're an international player. Uh, you will know if you're picked or not picked on Twitter because the coaches and, and, and the guys never really speak. Um, the, you will basically then, you don't know exactly who is your employee because you're fully contracted with the clubs. But when you leave for international windows, you feel that you're letting your club down. But then when you want to go back to your club, you feel you're being a, you're not a good patriot because you're not fighting for your country enough. Yeah. So you constantly have your, your, your seats in between two chairs, you know, and you don't know where you're going. Um, and 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 the federation does not have the the the, the, the power dominance because they don't have the money uh, to actually implement everything that they want. So this whole underperformance is too many games. Top fourteen is not made to do that, but is is not meant to 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 create international uh, players. But the main answer is saying not everybody's shooting the same way. The league is going one way, the federation is going the other, and the players are caught in the middle. That's really interesting. So I think about how the 
well, the home unions over here are structured, but we'll just focus on England for a second. The way I look at it is England are at the top of the tree and all the clubs serve into England. That is where the um, that is where the money is, that's where the glamour is. It's not clear to me that France is the same way. I mean, you look at the clubs that you played at, Stade Francais, in, it, um, in its pomp, Clermont is just some, some organisation. Uh, so you can see there's obviously a bit more parity there between what you do for a day job and then when you get picked for your national team. And I wonder if having the national team, and this is this sounds like heresy, but having the national team almost as a um, as a product of the league or having it under league control is better than having the league under federation control or RFU control as we have it over here. The problem is who's the boss? Yeah, who who decides? And as long as it's the minister of sport creates the federation, the federation delegates the rights to the league. Then the federation has to be the boss. Oh, the is minister that right? of sport has to be the boss. Yeah. I had no, I had no idea that it had any kind of government input. Of course, well, yeah, the federations are created by governments and stuff, and they're under the jurisdiction of the minister of sport and all that, you know. Oh. And which is why, which is one of the reasons why of the the, the renewal of French rugby is also majorly to the to down to the fact that the World Cup is in twenty twenty three is in France. Yeah. So I think now it's becoming to the fact that it's, I think the Minnesota sport really knocked on their door. The fact that Bernard Laporte, the new uh, French president, clearly wants to become the boss of French rugby and doesn't want any in-between decision makers and all that. But that's why I was very, very optimistic in February to think, finally, everybody's like, listen, let's cut the crap. In three years' time, every single rugby eye in the world is going to be looking at France. Whether we perform or not, we need to be the best host nations ever. I want to be the next Japan. Like people came back from, from Japan and would be like, what a country. What an organization. Rugby just was extraordinary there. Whether you win or you lose, that's the type of image that I wanted to give. Mm. But if the league is on one side, the federation is on the other, nobody's actually playing sort of part of the team, it's not going to work. So in federation, in February, I was super, super excited about finally seeing people going together. Galtier... Um, uh, it finally we're con- building basically a coaching staff, which is good. We get Sean Edwards. We get the best uh, co- uh, defense coach uh, in the world. We're finally proving to say that we need to improve. We need to change things. We're going to change. Fabien Galtier got 42 players uh, for his training camps during the Six Nations, which he's been asking for a long time. Before it used to be 30. So he could do full oppositions on Wednesday. Huh. Um the, the, the coaching staff of the French Federation has never been so present in the clubs. They are constantly there, constantly exchanging and constantly going. When they picked the French team, the first initial French team in February, there was a few guys who got picked who honestly were a bit relevation, uh, were a bit, uh, surprises, big surprises. And a few of them were coming from Bordeaux. And Raphael Libanez et Fabien Galtier bluntly said, the guy who knows the best, the Bordeaux players, is the Bordeaux coach. Christophe Furios. We picked them because he told us at the moment they're on fire, you will never be disappointed. And I think that's precisely what French team needs. They need that input and that general listen. The coaches feel that they can almost, at, at a distance or at a, with a certain level, they can almost push somebody to get selected rather than having those coaches, the French team coaches above all the clubs to be like, I know better than everybody else. Yeah. I will decide and I will do that. Because I can tell you from a fact, when the French team was losing, most French coaches would be saying, ah, I do a better job than him. Bah, that's a shame. 
And then uh, it's the first time there was Ibanez, Galtier, Laurent Labitte. They're piling quality instead of being... Uh, when, when's the last time that you had... Who's the, the defense coach of England? John Mitchell. John Mitchell coached the All Blacks. Mm. Head coach of the All Blacks. That's like the biggest uh, possible job you can get in world rugby coaching. Yeah. Right? He's still, hum- of course, there's a lot of money for RFU, so he's not doing this for free. But <laughs> he, he still has the humility to say, yes, I will be under Eddie Jones. Farrell was under uh, Joe Schmidt for a long, long time. That never caused him any problem. For the last history of, of French rugby, whenever it was Guinoves, the other guys would be like, no, no, no. Either I come number one or I don't come. There was never a time where we said, listen, we're going to pick, pick the best uh, forward coach, the best bass coach, the best head coach, the best conditioner. No, it was one guy coming with his coaching staff that were clearly under him that he had control on. Yeah. But we never compiled up um, competence, you know, um, knowledge, I- skill, whatever it was. It was more, more Wenga. I've got to say, yeah, there have been some strange appointments. I mean, G- Guinevaz actually wasn't one of the strange ones because he had such a rich history and you know won so much with too late it was too too late late. but you know you can sort of make that argument i i guess who was the other guy who he had coached france before very recently um but he was a forwards coach i think bordeaux a forwards coach for bordeaux was he forwards coach for bordeaux or leon the french coach um before before goldie before who before Galtier. Before Galtier was Jacques Brunel. Yes. He he was a forward. I mean, I know he'd coached before that, but didn't they? Yeah, yeah. But he was, do you know what happened? Is that Jacques Brunel was the, was the forwards coach of Bernard Laporte for eight years. Ah. And Bernard Laporte was French president. And Bernard Laporte put Jacques Brunel in there because Bernard Laporte was technically almost the coach of the French team. Got you. So that's, again, what I, it's exactly what I'm telling you. It's not, you're not piling any um, quality you're mm. just making sure that you're the boss. You're just making sure that everybody will listen to you. I'm with you. So, so it, it's, it's, it, it is extremely frustrating to see that all those little, the fact that nobody works together, nobody goes in the same direction, caused the dramas and, and especially the most, the underperformance of French rugby for the last 10 years. But do you think some of the headbutting and some of the um, not getting on so well is a product of having such a competitive league? Yeah, because I don't, I don't think so. Do, do, do you think Super Rugby is not competitive? Do you think the Premiership is not competitive? I, I don't think it's competitive in the way that the top forty, the top fourteen is. I think top fourteen is probably the most competitive league in in the world. It's certainly got the most money in. Um, exactly. So that's, got well, now, you, the now you're addressing, but so yeah, but now you're putting your finger on it. What what's compet- competition? What's a performing? I think top fourteen is self-proclaimed best Premiership in the world. But what does best premiership? What does best premiership mean? Best quality rugby played? Heck no. No. Or is best. it the most the the most economical, the biggest economical power? Well, then yes, definitely. Do you not think the two things are interlinked though? Do you not think that? I don't think so. No, I, I thoroughly do not think so, and I think that's the problem. So I would say that the money in the top fourteen is just a different way to express its, express its success, and the reason it's got the money is because it can attract all of these big presidents because they look at it and think, this is where I want to put put my cash. If it was about you know, the standard of rugby, 
you know, all all these wealthy individuals, and there's plenty of them in Australia and South Africa, they would be piling their money into Super Rugby. But for whatever reason it is, there's something about the French game which inspires people to part with their cash, and that in itself is a real, it's a real powerful thing. It is, but that's not down to the to the new top 14 is down to the roots of French rugby. Like I said, if you go play in Bayonne, in Toulouse, in Perpignan or in Paris, you feel that you've traveled the world. It's four different places. <laughs> the rugby is completely different. You, you, and, and that's, that's the, 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 the originality and the, the reason why people fall in love with France so much. We've got an incredible country, to be honest. Mm. And, and, it, and the, 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 the fans are just absolutely berserk about their, about their rugby. And that makes it super exciting. People, the passion for rugby in France is ginormous. But I guess and that's I... what makes it super exciting and, and, and super good. So the, basically the top 14, what it's created is they, they, they thought exactly what you said. They thought that rewarding by money was a proof of success. Yeah. Generating money was a proof of success. I don't believe it. And they're realizing now. Because they realized if the French team then starts collapsing, it's bad for rugby in general, and it does impact the top 14. Yeah. If the quality of play is not that extraordinary because either the players are not there or the economical stress is so high that they can't actually that the refs can't it's, not, it's poorly refed because the refs just can't take a decision uh, without having sort of you know a laser at the back of their heads. Um, the, the 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 coaches cannot really take the risk of launching young players because the risk is too is too big. Yeah, uh, the economical risk is too big and the pressure is too high. So that pressure now they're realizing is counterproductive, and I really do think they 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 are realizing that we sort of shot ourselves in, in the foot a little bit. What you said then is really interesting, particularly about you know the different styles of play and how you can go to different parts of France and you experience a different game. Because I guess that all feeds into it. Because if you think, I mean, I don't know where, what the styles of play are, but say if Claremont have a style and the you know the Claremont coach gets 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 the gig, presumably you know uh, the people who were brought up on beer it's rugby will think, well, that is completely wrong, or the Parisian or the Parisian rugby crowd or whoever it is. So I, I guess that's what I mean by the competition. I mean, it's all grown up in such different ways. True, and that that is also true with the French team. Um, every time we implement a new a new coaching staff, obviously you want the coaching staff and the head the head head of French rugby to implement his own style. Okay, but we had a loss of identity, mm. so we were we, we talk about the French flair. Forget about the French flair; that's history. But even just playing attacking rugby was not what we did under Philippe Saint André. Yes. And then Guinoves came and then he started doing something else. And I don't know if you remember Marc Lievremont when he yeah, first yeah. started, he created this thing. International rugby said, you're not allowed to kick in the ball. But he, <laughs> went, he went too far in French rugby, in French flair, sorry. Then Philippe Saint-André went too far the other way around. And then Guinoves was sort of stuck in the middle. Then Jacques Brunel, we don't know what he did. And now Galtier is, is finally trying to say, listen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's exactly what you said. We need to have throughout France and throughout French rugby in general, the common knowledge and the common idea that that's the type of rugby that we want to play. I... I I hate to jealous them, but you got to admit that the Kiwis they know something or, or, or two about rugby. They do. Yeah, yeah they, they are do. pretty. They are they are pretty good. You have to say. And the one thing that I jealous of them is they know their identity of rugby. So generations will change and things need to change and this. But they know the type of rugby they want to play. Yeah, and and they know where they want to go. And I think France has struggled with that. Of we we did not know which type of rugby we wanted to play for a long, long time. But I think that's the beauty of it. So you're absolutely right. And anyone who says that the Kiwis don't know what they're talking about themselves does not know what they're talking about. But they don't inspire me. Uh, they don't inspire me like the French do. Because the whole point of point of the French, for me at least, is they do turn over New Zealand. And they do it at, like, at historic times. And you know, just because they're bad one week, they'll be great, great the next. And I think actually I prefer the diversity um, of styles rather than just knowing one thing and, you know, being really, really good at that one thing. I mean, I just don't get excited by New Zealand rugby, which I know is a very strange thing to say for a guy who loves watching rugby. <laughs> I think you're just jealous because they, they win a lot. <laughs> oh, no, but, they are uh, wonderful. And I, wonderful. I, I am as well. No, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. It's you like, but because that's the nature of, of, of competition, you, you also like the underdog. You yeah. want the surprise. You want the you know the little guy beating the big guy. It's true. We all want that. We we this is it's part of rugby. You know, an odd shaped ball that bounces sometimes your way, sometimes mm. doesn't. That's what we all love about rugby. Um, we all want the, the 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 mess of rugby that it generates, and that's why I'm always fuming when I still feel see that people want to make the scrum cleaner and this cleaner. Rugby can't be clean, no, and it can't. shouldn't be clean. The cleaner it gets, the more boring it gets the more predict predictable it gets we need the big fellas to tire otherwise you will not have any more gaps mm. and and if 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 you want to transform this i mean imagine how hard it is to find space now yes imagine how hard it, w- it will be if you can actually change and not have any more of those heavy guys that can't shift their weight as better as before if you have 15 back rows on the on the field it's going to be one boring game it really is i'm, I'm glad you said that we are this is going off topic a bit, but we are going into a scenario now because of COVID and no one can help with that. It's uh, the best we can hope for. But the scrum at grassroots level is going to be outlawed effectively. Well, no, not effectively. Yeah, it is outlawed. So over the next six months, we're going to find out exactly what rugby union will look like without a scrum. And I think you're right. It will just be more back rows. And hey, if you look at the law changes now where the, there's one dynamic movement and then, you know, you you get a penalty against you if you roll well then i've got a feeling we're going to just see a lot more kicking so you're absolutely right on that 
but I, unfortunately, you, you can't stay at 15 on pitch. So we're gonna then let's face it. If people want to play rugby league, let's play rugby league. Yeah, I've seen some crap rugby league games. I've seen some fantastic rugby league games as well. Yeah, they, I, I have to say, I, I I was never a fan of rugby league until I watched sort of Australian and the NRL. I think they call it or something. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it does get very very exciting. Oh, it's honest. great! It is great. I'm not I'm not I'm not a big NFL fan at all. Mm. But then I actually saw some plays where they can pass the ball to each other. I didn't know they were allowed to do that. And it's a whole different sport. Yeah. You know, so it's also the way that you do it. But I agree with you. If, if getting rid of the scrum, you're going to kill the identity of, of, of rugby union. And so there's actually, for me, there's no point even trying. And going to all those cleaner, um, more predictable phases by implementing new rules is going to kill our spirits. I mean... What do you like in the crowd? You like the big guy who who can bump bump off the little one, but who can't chase the 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 the, the fast one. You know, it's we need the tall, we need the small, we need the crazy, we need the brain guy, and that's the reason why I desperately need others, and that's why it's a great school of life, and that's the reason why I'm going back to the fact that why I fell in love with it. In the nature of the sport, you need others. In the nature of the sport, you are fuck all with with with, with somebody who's not different than you next to you and that's what is is it's is the biggest lesson in life basically that's why it teaches us so much is that we are absolutely nothing without others and so people are like oh the values is great you guys show a lot of solidarity so yeah yeah okay but it's all it's a necessity mm. it's, we can't go we can't go with it and i think the more cleaner you make it like you say if we can have 15 back rows on the pitch and stuff then am I going to need as much of my mates? Not really. Exactly. So you're killing the soul of this game if you do that. Yeah. Now, just to revisit something you said before, could you just give me some examples of where in France I get different styles of rugby? Because I found that comment really interesting. Um, so obviously it's down, it's down to, to, to coaching and stuff, but Toulouse will always have historically a very open... Um, offloading, get, leave the ball alive uh, type of play. Um, they always said it, it comes from um, make sure that you, 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 how do you say that? Make sure that you implement the continuity of the game. Yes. So from, from when they start rugby at six, they are told the ball needs to stay alive. Keep it alive. Offload, put it down, clean the ball as quick as you can. Keep on putting pace to the ball. That's what they do. So they're not, their kicking game has never been extraordinary to but in their soul, in their DNA, they are raised by just keeping the ball alive. And mm. it's true that you do see it a lot. I mean, they've got something about them that that's how they're they're wired. That they just keep it alive and keep on going. Don't get me wrong; they still have a massive scrum. And when they had the Yannick Josion, the Florian Fleets to play centers at two centers, they were over 110 kgs. Yeah. You know, so they they're still very very physical, but. They, 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 in their minds, it was keep the ball alive. You go to Perpignan and Toulon as well, it's all about aggressivity. Mm. You need to be angry, angry, angry on the edge. So they can be very violent, very, very, <laughs> very to the limit, impossible to lose at home. You know that type of mentality. Yeah. You know, no? um, Burritz, sort of southwest, a little bit in, in between. But then all the east, the Lyon, the Grenoble, the Bourgoin, the Clermont, the Brive are very more, more very much more um, forwards orientated, um, hard grafters, not as flash, you know, but the grafters, the Leicesters, the Northamptons, the ah. and, and all that. Um, and then Paris, well, Paris will just discover their own style, you know, because they're a little bit 
they're a little bit uh, they're a little bit out there. But it's more about the panache. I mean, Paris. Look at the racing, the Eden Park story of 1991. The, yeah. the, the reason why they they won it wearing a pink bow tie, and that the the physio had a, a, a Scottish kilt and brought them. <laughs> Their, their their orange juice on the glass yeah. uh, flutes, you know, it's, it's that was them. They painted their faces in black one day because there were some racist um, insults from one of the black players that played for them. Uh, yeah. They they were just doing all sorts of crazy stuff because nobody knew them in Paris. Nobody cares about rugby in Paris, and uh, they need to create something different. And then Stade Français, twenty years later, did exactly the same thing. Yeah, the pink jerseys, the calendars. Uh, wearing blazers, playing uh, the pom pom girls, uh, the shows before the game because you need to create something that's not there. So it's it's just a little bit the same recipes every time. Now you are a Parisian yourself, yes? I am. Yeah, born and raised. Uh, where do you see the soul of the French game, or is it not quite that simple? Uh, it's quite. It's, it's not that. Originally, I thought it was southwest. Yeah. Originally, for me, um, the French game is southwest based. Is if if I'm if I don't get it wrong, historically, like a hundred years ago, that's actually where it comes from. Mm-hmm. It comes from this game called La Soule, which is quite a crazy game. If you look it up on the internet, it's basically villages. That's what the history of rugby villages where you had an odd shaped ball, yeah, and they would hide it. I think, and the whole idea was like the whole village need to bring the ball on the other way on on the other village, so you could do it whatever you want. It was more of a brawl than rugby, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But it was a way of just getting this this piece of ball somewhere else so and then the first actual club so they played a lot of league after that and then the first actual club i think is 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 in is in paris it was mm. either Stade francais or racing that's why Stade francais are like 17 times champion in history uh. but they're like 10 times champion from 1910 to 1940 or something whereas there was three clubs there was bordeaux racing and them and they kept on playing between each other <laughs> you know um and um so this but so i thought the soul was Toulouse, but to be honest, living ten years in Clermont, I've never seen such passion and such fanatism as uh, as as in Clermont. They are absolutely crazy about their rugby, a lot more than I thought. Yeah, it's amazing, um, isn't it? It is amazing. They, they are completely banana. But I mean, kids, grandmothers, women, whatever it is, everyone. So I think it's it's pretty much spread around everywhere. But originally, it's based in Southwest. Just on the Clermont thing. I've been lucky enough to watch a Clermont versus Stade Francais game in Paris. I travelled over to see it. Uh, and, you know, I, in, not that anyone doesn't know this already, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The Clermont fans are wild. So, what I wanted to ask is how much difference is there from playing, well, the, the reception you get from your Clermont fans compared to the reception you get when you finally get picked for the French team? Do you feel the same sort of. Um, appreciation from the French public in general for the French team as you would from the Claremont fans? No, oh, no, you, you can't, you can't even compare. Um, mm. you, you can't compare. It doesn't mean that the, the welcoming of the French fans is, is big, but it's, it's different. It's French fans. Look, I would just said the difference of, of rugby in France all over yeah. and the French fans come from all over. So they're already there's not one thing there's not not such a thing as one French fan. They always have a club in, under their under their French jersey. There's always a club there, yeah. you know, and, and and sort of a region and something. Clermont honestly is it it is mind blowing. Like I've got goosebumps every time I think about the greatest moments that they make me feel. Um, 
the semi-final against Saracens in Saint-Étienne in 2015. Saint-Étienne is, a, is 110K, so it's like 90 miles away from Clermont. Yeah. We're very, very much in the mind, sort of very similar towns. You know, people, you know when two towns sort of connect emotionally and stuff. Mm. So it was huge for the club to go play in the Geoffroy Guichard, which is the, the football stadium at Saint-Étienne. Fantastic stadium. Yeah. Um, the whole region of Clermont drove to Saint-Étienne for the game. The whole motorway, <laughs> so it's, it's 90 miles. It took them six hours to drive. The whole motorway was with the 63 license plates, which is the, the license plate of Clermont, yeah. everywhere. We got to the stadium. It's the first time in my life I almost wanted to tell them to calm down because I couldn't hear a thing to what my teammates were saying. It was, it was so incredibly loud and the, the, the support was outstanding that we did one lap to say thank you. Then we just kept on going a second one. And then we kept on going. I think we did three or four or five. Yeah. We, just, we just loved that moment. And nobody left their, their seat. And then we drove back. I, it is unreal to see, to see the devotion and the passion that these people can see. I always take the example that in 2017, so we lose the Champions Cup final to Saracens, unfortunately. And then we end up winning the top 14, which was awesome. Mm. And then in, the, in Clermont, there's a, a big place de Jaude, like the center of town. There's, there's like a big rectangle. There was 100,000 people on that, on that uh, sort of city center yeah. place out of 160,000 people in the, in the town. That's something, isn't it? Never seen so many people, everybody clapping. It was just an, a surreal experience. And a couple of weeks after, I went to David Shuttle's wedding in England mm-hmm. and I bumped into Brad Barrett, his, his former Saracens captain. Yeah. And uh, we we're chatting away and, and he was like, oh, I saw the celebrations. That's awesome. Congratulations. I'm really, really jealous. I was like, well, your third Champions Cup uh, title, surely you did something. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've been living 10 years in, in St. Albans or something. And there's my local club uh, pub at the bottom of my house that he always goes like to for a pint on the Sunday and this and that. And I had a bit of a session with a few of his teammates on the session on the Sunday. And he sees uh, like a plateau of beers arriving. And he's like, oh, finally, 10 years living in that pub. I'm finally going to get a free pint for my third Champions Cup title, you know? And they have a few beers, they're having a laugh, and at the end of the day, the ticket arrives, and he asked them to pay the bill. So he didn't oh. get a free pint. <laughs> he didn't even get a free pint for his third Champions Cup title. I had 100,000 people clapping me, or clapping us, obviously, mm. in, in our city center, and it was just mind-blowing. So you can't even start to, to, to compare the Clermont fans with, with, with anything else. They are respectful, crazy, committed. Um, when we went to Saracens, remember that game that got cancelled because of the snow? Yes. Well, not cancelled, but postponed a couple of days. And then you battered them on the Monday. Then we battered them. There's people who that came. So it's a bit, it's a bit good. Clermont is not a um, rich town. They're humble people who work hard. And when they spend 50 bucks on a ticket, it's, it's important to them. You know? Yeah, yeah. So when, so when they travel to London, it's, <laughs> listen, we're not going to go on a holiday this year because we went to follow the team in London. That's pretty much what it means to them. It's incredible. And the game was on a Saturday, I think, and we ended up playing the Monday or the Sunday night, I can't remember, mm. except there wasn't any planes to come back. So the people were meant to fly back the Saturday That's after the game. Right. Yeah. I know that there's fans that went back to their hotel. The hotel was full that night. They had to sleep in a, in a conference room on the floor, on the carpets. The next day, they came to the to the stadium. They watched the game with us. They couldn't fly back. We had a private plane. We flew back to Clermont. We were back that Sunday. Mm. They came back the Tuesday because the Sunday flight couldn't go. The Monday flight couldn't go. You know, that's paid off. That's, uh, how do you say it? Um, 
leave days of work, you know what I mean? Un unpaid yeah. days of work that you need to take off work and stuff to do that. They did not say anything to us. They were just so happy to be there. I'm like, I'm looking at these people. I'm thinking the commitment that they're showing I, is, is just mind-blowing. For just a simple Champions Cup game, they traveled four days. They spent their, 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 the money for the holidays for that year and they didn't even complain. They slept on the floor. And they didn't even complain about it. And they were super happy to say, oh, we have not missed it for the world. It's like, you know, that's, it's that's amazing, just taking it? it to a whole different level. But I think people just like that sense, uh, that sense of belonging to something a little bit bigger than themselves. Oh, yeah. Well, Clermont, it's, it's 100% that. It's everyone. Yeah. But not even in... Um, so we had, that's good times. We had some bad times, obviously. And never, never aggressive. Never mean. Was it, was it difficult for you... Because I was looking, I was looking at your career before we had a chat. So you're Parisian born and bred. Um, you were obviously at Stad before you went to Tigers. You went to Tigers back to Stad, but then you left it, left Stad again. So I'm just reading between the lines there. It sounds like you had to make some difficult decisions. No. So what happened is that 2007, I'm 23. Things are or 22. Things are going great. It's Stade Français, and I'm almost almost in the French team and all that, but I'm in competition with Dimitri Zarzewski. Yeah. And we were in competition our whole life. I mean, we he started for the under-21s. I was on the bench. Then he went in the French team. I started for the under-21s. Then I did France A. And then he signed in my club in, in Stade Francais. We we're constantly in competition. Uh, yes. And, um, and I'm about to re-sign uh, for Stade Francais just because I love Paris too much and all that. I didn't see myself playing anywhere else in, in, in France at the time. And um, Juan Hernandez was in contact with Leicester Tigers and Gustin Pichot uh, was a good mate of mine. And we're literally in the bus and he's like, oh, so what are you doing next year? He's like, oh, I'm about to resign. He's like, are you sure? I was like, well, I think so. I don't really fancy going anywhere else. Yes, the competition is a bit shit, but, you know, I'm just going to back myself. He's like, what about Leicester? Oh, I don't know. I never thought about even going anywhere else. He's like, let me try. So he just sent a message. He's like, what? I see the message that he's writing. Would you be interested in Ben Kayser? And you know how you see the text <laughs> under when it says typing? You know yeah, those yeah. three little dot, dot, dot? I'm literally we're waiting on this. And it's the director of rugby or somebody from Leicester was like, yes, please, very interesting. That's how it happened. Wow. And on the Monday, I had a phone call from Richard Cockrell, who, um, who knew all about my career, who knew anything about me and whatever. And then we left it because we ended up playing Leicester in the quarterfinal of Champions Cup. I don't know if you remember that game where Alisana Tuilagi gets yes. whacked by Juan Hernandez in the meter corner. from the line. That one. And I started that game and I had a really good game because Dimitri was injured. Mm. And um, and I had a really good game. And Welford Road is a, just a beautiful stadium when it's full. Yeah, it's good, um, isn't it? The sun was out. They tricked me. Yeah. Um, and and it was just an extraordinary day. And we just, just lost. But at that time, Leicester were ginormous. They were beating everyone. That year, they did three finals, won two titles. That's right, yeah. You know, I was like, bloody hell. That's, so I said, that's me drafting to the NFL. And the week after the the week after the that quarterfinal, they were like, "Listen, uh, come over, come for a visit." And uh, they made me a good offer, and I went to visit the facilities. It just blew my mind. I was like, "Yeah, that's that's the challenge for me." And it was nothing for me to go because my English was already good. So whether I was going to Clermont to Bird to wherever, it was easy. Mm -hmm. And then after that, moving from Leicester, where I wanted to go back to France because of the, I was just in the French team and they needed more visibility. The French coach was like, everybody was leaving. You know, Chabal was going back. Saint-André was leaving. Lionel Fort, Sébastien Bruno, all those guys from Sale were going back to France. So I would have been the only Frenchman in the premiership. So he completely out of the, the eye, you know, uh, off yeah, the radar. Yeah, of so course. I went back to France. 
and Clermont made me an offer. And I was like, I'm, I was with my wife at the time. I was like, I'm the French one. I'm telling you, we will never live in Clermont. <laughs> it's too small. It's too remote. It's not us, nothing. And they were about to sign. I was about to sign somewhere else or resign in Leicester maybe. And then I had this whole thing with Dimitri who said, oh, you can't come. We were in French team together at the time. So you can't come back to Stade, you know, otherwise it's going to be war. I said, what do you mean it's going to be war? I started in the academy of Stade Francais. Nobody's going to tell me whether I can play or not in Leicester. You know, my parents live in, in, in Paris. My grandfather lives in Paris. My, my, my uncle is there. So, and my grandfather wasn't well at the time, so I wanted to come back. So I took it as a challenge, went back to Stade. Incredibly poor decision. <laughs> Shit here. Ah. And then after after a few months, I had to find a solution just because Tad was struggling financially. I wasn't happy. I wasn't playing well. And so I signed one year in Castres, but I'd already signed for Clermont for the four years Castres, after that. Yeah. Yes. So that's why it went it went it went like that. But um but it all happens that you need to be open minded. I told my wife we will never play in Clermont. And actually one day I went to visit for once. Yeah. Like an idiot. I've never, never, never been to Clermont uh, ever. And, uh, and actually, I was like, oh, this is a lot better than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> a lot better than, than the shit hotel that I remember and uh, the bus drive that we always used to do, you know, because you don't really see much when you go to a town. You see a coffee shop, a hotel, and an airport or a train station. That's about it. And, um, and that was the best decision I've made. Incredible stuff. Incredible. Yeah, I, I do think of you, you know, as one of the last French players. I know there have been lads subsequently i think julian De- julian dupree was probably he was there the same time as me yeah, yeah. um obviously we've had pickamoles but when we've had the french players over they've added so much to the game it's just a shame that we don't that that we don't have don't have more i'm based up in manchester so i remember chabal and bruno and yeah. all those boys really really, really well yeah but who was no, it i i i would really pushed like i was disappointed when you know the, the really stocky uh new caledonia uh well french but um hooker christopher tolofua yeah yeah, yeah. Is it, i it, thought that was it, that was i thought that was a terrific terrific signing is that where he's from new caledonia yeah I, is was the big second was the big second row from new caledonia as well the uh, uh roman Tau, yeah 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 no um yeah. who am i thinking of the other guy Vamaina. yes him He's new. Uh, yeah, they all are. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He um he was disappointing actually. I I I'm with you there. I thought he was going to be superb for Saracens with that natural size and the natural gift that he has in the Saracens team. I thought he was going to be an absolute world beater. Yeah, same. But 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 you you English, is <laughs> is the way to see it, which I learned in Leicester. To be fair, how many hookers play hooker in England that can't throw? None. They play six. Yeah. How many tens play ten if they can't kick? None. They play twelve. Yes, true. But in France, François Trinduc had forty caps for France, and he started learning to kick at twenty-six or twenty-seven. No. Uh, yeah, Rémi Talès started kicking when he was thirty, and I... and and Christopher Tolofua is a beast in the scrum, can do anything on the pitch, but can't throw for his life, and still got picked for the French team when he was nineteen. Bloody because you're like, oh, he'll we'll pick it up, he'll pick it up, he'll get there. That's that's. That's another difference between France and England for you. That's incredible, a bit, particularly a bit about Remy Talas because I, I love the way that that guy plays. I've always wondered why oh, he didn't I have more caps. Well, it was mainly due to that he couldn't kick. I never he, knew he that does, he doesn't kick the post. No, he doesn't. Then he started when he was thirty-one because Philippe Saint-André told him, "Listen, you, you have to, otherwise I can't start you <laughs> because you couldn't have two options." Um, it, and because at the time he was also playing with some nines that didn't kick. Mm. It, but it's funny because in, in France, a lot of nines, the nines kick. Yeah, yeah. 
Farah, Bézi, uh, even Dupont now is, is starting a little bit. Uh, Serein, you know, whereas in England, it's all the tens that keep. Yeah. So how do you see this French team now then? Do you see them as a bit... In fact, actually, let me just dovetail that into um, into uh, the current fly-off, Entomac, because he isn't he isn't a 10. He's actually a, he's actually a 12. So is, is he the other way around, a 12 that can kick, so they moved him over to 10? <laughs> no, no, he's, he's played uh, 10 a lot when he was young. Yeah. But I think he, when he got to professional rugby, they had to put him at 12. I, I honestly think it's almost to protect him, mm. to relieve him from a little bit of the... In France, the 12s play like 12s. They don't really play like... I don't know how you call that... Um, Second fives, or you know what I mean, like another ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't yeah. really have many twelves, like Owen Farrell in France and all that. Um, we very rarely play with George Ford or Owen Farrell. You know, have your big stocky guy will play twelve, and the faster guy will play thirteen. So that's you why know, you it's, get it's, your Jonathan Dantes or whoever it may be. Yeah, uh, Bastaro, you know, all those mm. guys. That you, you usually it's not always the case, but usually you get one big stocky guy and another guy. Even at the moment, Gael Fiku Vakatawa incredible players yeah, but none of them are real organizers of play are they no no they're not actually i've never so, really thought of it that way so that's a very english thing it's a very english thing to do that second five i think they call it whatever which in certain cases can, can be incredibly productive but in the same time if you can have both gail fiku vakatawa uh, teddy toma damian peno whatever poof, you've got some threats everywhere yeah so I, it depends what, what how you want to play. I guess the guy who would buck that trend for French 12s would have been Damien Try back in the day because he he could play 10 and, yeah. he, and he was enormous yeah. 12 too. And he was very, very good, I have to say. I, I rated him highly. Had a great kicking game and could do everything. It always makes me laugh when you well, people are like, oh, the, the physiques in rugby are just, you know, off the charts now in the good old days, this, good old days, that. <laughs> Damien Trail was a monster. Dam- well, Yannick Josion, Yannick Josion is a monster. Aurélien Rougerie is a freak of nature. Yeah. David Skrella was still a meter ninety-two for hundred kgs. He played ten. Yeah. Um, I'm telling you, we still Vincent Clair was no little guy. We still have some massive, massive players even at the time. Well, and even uh, don't get me started with the Olivier Roumat and the Olivier Merle and the Gérard Cholet, all those guys. They are ginormous human beings. Yeah. They've always been there. And everybody's like, oh, the rugby players are just getting bigger and faster and bigger and bigger. Not really. There's always been monsters all the time. It's just the game. There's too many games. That's the problem. The funny thing about that backline that you named them, because they did all play together, didn't they? Um, yeah. Skrella and Jojon and Try. You don't even think of Skrella as a big man because the other oh, guys were so big. Yeah. Jojon, Rougerie, Try for backs. Yeah, they were tall, they were fast, and they were strong, very, very strong. Even Florian Fritz is still like your very, very solid center next to him that wouldn't look as big as them. Or Vincent Clair, it's still 100 kgs, and they, they could hit. Yeah, yeah. Joe Jones probably my one of my favorite players of all time. I think he's just just outrageously, outrageously talented. Uh, so, how do you see this current crop going? Obviously, there's been a huge turnover, and they are the talk of the town now. Um, why are they different? They're different because, again, in February, for the first time, people started working together. Mm-hmm. They're different because there's a new, because about six or seven years ago, there was a terrific amount of work done by the Federation to put a lot of money and time and structure in the under-20 setup. They basically copied the English model. Yeah. Because at the time, England were, were killing the under-20s at level. They were repeatedly being world champions, and France just didn't understand why. 
So they really put a lot of time and money into it. And, and <clears throat> we're blessed with a, a generation of not only good players, but world-class players. Yeah. Um, especially 9 and 10 is making such a huge difference because you do have Dupont and Tamak, okay? Everybody's heard and we spoke about them enough and they're doing extremely well. But behind, you still have Serin, you still have Bézi, you still have Jalibert, you still have Carbonel. Yes. When's the last time you had three tens for France that were under 22 or under 23? And the three of them, I'm telling you, are gifted. Mm. They're very, very good. So that's, that's tremendous. Finally, like I said, the reason is an extraordinary young generation. Finally, all the political power trying to work together. So the, 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 the bridge and the, the walls between the federation and the club is starting to open up and the communication is better and they're actually working together. And also, finally, uh, we had a, a coaching staff that is piling knowledge and competence um, and skill rather than just friendship and, and tight bonds. I mean, Jacques Brunel was there because Bernard Laporte put him there. Now you go pick Galtier. Uh, the, the former manager of, of the French team did not even speak English. Now it's Rafael Ibanez, who's like worldwide very good politician, very good diplomat, and he can represent mm. and knows what international rugby is. Uh, the forwards coach of the French team used to be, who was it? Well, the line-outs coach was Julien Bonner, my former mate from, from Clermont. Never coached in his life. Yes. And they gave him the French team gig. But you, would, I wouldn't say no, but they still <laughs> picked him. Now they went to get Karim Ghezal, the guy from Lyon, who's for the last five years doing a fantastic job. They took forwards coach, they took William Servat almost one of the best forward coaches or probably the best forward coach there is. They needed a backs coach. It used to be Jean-Baptiste Elisald, who coached the under-18s, then got sacked by Toulouse. And they went to get Laurent Labitte, who's one of the best coaches around there. The former conditioner, who used to be Nicolas Jean-Jean, 20 caps for France, okay, but he was CrossFit instructor six months before. Now they went to get Thibaut Giroud, who's one of the best conditioners. You know what I mean? So it's a complete I change see. of quality in the coaching in the back office or whatever you want to call it, in the coaching staff, that is, and Sean Edwards, obviously, I forgot to say, I forgot to mention, they went to get the best defense coach in the world. Yeah. So yeah. those changes are just, so new hot generation, finally people working together and the quality of the coaching staff. It's really interesting that. Uh, Bonaire came straight from Lyon, did he not? Yeah. Yeah, because they had a, they had a serious outfit and a serious line out too. They had um... oh absolutely, but he wasn't the, the liner coach. No, he's he was still playing. He was an incredible, legendary player. I was blessed to play five years with him. Gifted in the lineout, loved it. But he didn't coach the lineout at Lyon. It was Karim Gazal and that Julien Puricelli. I, I was going to say the, uh, uh, the Puricelli, the captain. That's was, uh... what he does. That's what Puricelli does. He just he retired and he's the lineout coach. And then I grew there. Yeah, I, I watched one of their games a few years ago now. Um, and Porcelli just just absolutely ran the show, and not necessarily on their ball, but on on defensive ball. He Defense, was superb. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Superb. One of the best best lineup defense in in France. Excellent. Well, you've been more more than more than generous with your time, Benjamin. Thank you so much. Tell us about your podcast, where, when it comes out, what days it comes out, where we can download it, where you are on social media, all of that good stuff. Oh, hang on, no, no, not yet. Yeah. One last thing. Yeah. You're doing yeah. your MBA. Yeah. at Oxford. Now, I've encountered a lot of ex-rugby players who do degrees and whatnot at Oxford uh, post-playing, but part of that is they show up for the for the Oxford team. Are you, are you going to be playing again? No, no, no. I, I would have loved to, to be honest. Um, I think the experience would have been amazing. 
Um, so I, 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 I help out whenever I'm there uh, coaching-wise. Yeah. So I've been for the last two modules. So I did about four or five trainings with them and stuff. And I love it. And it's a very exciting Oxford team for, for next year. I think the varsity match has been pushed to March. Mm-hmm. It was meant to be in December. It was meant to be sort of next week. But it's been pushed push to, to March. Uh, there's a very exciting teams with some USA internationals. I can't really tell you all the names, but there's some very, very solid players there. And I just love, I actually, I love it. I, I love the, how important everything is when you represent Oxford over there. Yeah. I love that rivalry. I love that history. I love that, that part of the thing. And I'm really good mates with Flip Von der Merf, the oh, yeah, yeah. former lock who's in Cambridge with James Horwell. Yeah, and they both played the last varsity match, and he said, "Yes, the traveling was a bit tough, and you go to some cheap hotels and this and that." But they they loved the experience of the actual match day varsity. They said it was well worth it. It goes back to the the roots of why we like rugby. It's you incredible. Know, why game. we fell in love with it and all that. Who were the coaches? So no, I will I will not be playing because my neck is completely gone, and I can't take any risks with it. But I will help as much as I can coaching wise. Uh, who who are the coaches currently at Oxford? Uh, Wadey, wait, uh, still Wadey, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So Wadey and... Um, I think Barry McGuigan was doing a, a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. He's he's going back and forth. I think well, he's just because he's recovering from an injury at the moment. So yeah. I don't know exactly what his commitment is, but it's basically them two. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Well, tell us about your podcast and social media and, and, and everything else, because I feel it's very important. And I feel that a lot of people are, are, are going to want to listen. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, so it's called Le French Podcast because we didn't want to create anything <laughs> very extraordinary, very, very original. It's basically just what we said earlier. Listen, all the questions that I get asked about, but why in France this, why that? Uh, so it's myself, Johnny BT, the former Scottish international who's been living in France for the last 10 years, and Tim Groves. Um, and we are on social media, yeah, Instagram and Twitter and all those things. We try to either chat between the three of us about uh, hot topics and get some very interesting guests. So we had Thierry Dussautoir, we had mm-hmm. Stefan Armitage, we had Joe Rocothoco, we had Chris Musoi, we had Philippe Sella. Because you have to admit, the guests that you can get that either played or still play in top 14, their list is Huge. mind-blowing. Just the last, the last 10 years of the Toulon squad, you'll get about 10,000 caps in there. So, you know, if you could get the Johnny Wilkinson, Bakis Bota, Matt Guito, Mathieu Bastaro. Matt Guito is a fantastic trying to get guest. Some exposures on those, those guys, trying to get a maximum amount of French guys who can speak English to give their experience. What's the myth, the reality, the funny stories um, and, and the differences and the, the particularity of French rugby? That's what we try to, try to have a laugh with. Wonderful. Well, Thank you once more. Really, really enjoyed it. And let's catch up again soon. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks a lot, mate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Mott. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero? or the villain. On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com